Hello, and welcome to Bad Impressions, the podcast where we'll take a critical but lighthearted look at the world of digital marketing with the funniest and smartest people we know. Tune in more or less every week if you think that there's a lot to laugh about in the world of putting things online to get people to buy stuff. Uh, With that, I guess we'll introduce the cast. David, would you start us off? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm David Shola. Over my not short, uh, but not long career, uh, I've become a generalist for Biddable Media. Uh, I've touched everything from DMP management to ad ops, as well as hands-on keyboard, in-platform buying, uh, cross-search, programmatic, and social. Excellent. Ryan, would you like to go? Yeah, I'm Ryan Farley, also known as Randy, Randall Farmley. Uh, I'm a media manager at Discovery, working on all of our international sports broadcasting uh, direct consumer products, CA Sports. Also stopped at Vader Media, and that's how I know these characters. And I'm Lee Elliott. For over a decade, people have been forcing me to put things on the internet, still images, moving images, sometimes sounds also, uh, and then subsequently asking me, was this good? should we have put this on the internet to try and get people to do things? I've really been struggling to answer that question my whole life. So I figured uh, why not struggle with that question in public with people who generally struggle less than I do. Um, By which I'm talking about David and and Ryan, because we're also about to introduce our first guest who I would say does struggle as much as I do. Sean Langton, who will, will do a bit more of a bio when we get to his chosen topic. But first, kind of wanted to talk about uh, something in the news that I think is is timely, but also timeless. And and it's a major shakeup in the brand advertising world. Dunkin' Donuts, or or I guess just Dunkin', because they they dropped the donuts, uh, was recently bought by Inspire Brands, a nebulous equity holding restaurant type thing in my hometown of Atlanta. Uh, that already owns a number of restaurants. And it kind of sparked an interesting thought to me, which is certain brands are super associated with the the city they're from or or the region they're from and are said to have some sort of cultural association and cachet. Uh, And I think Dunkin' Donuts to a lot of Americans, well, it's it's very broad, is very much associated with the Northeast and a certain kind of, you know, Donnie Boston type character. Uh, a lot of a lot of great videos of people with their donkeys, you know, in Massachusetts news. So it's it's pretty interesting that a bunch of reverse carpetbaggers from Atlanta have have bought up a northeastern icon. And I I guess the question I kind of want to put to the group is like, are there really any brands left or or anything that like you feel like it's some sort of sacrilege if they're no longer actually based in some sort of home territory that's part of their identity? I think that's a great question. Um, I think when we were kind of like talking about this, like before we started the the, the recording of this, uh, one of the things that kind of caught me is like all of their brands are brands that very much aren't geographically like based in Atlanta. Uh, you know, we have uh, the Arby's, the Sonics of the world, Jimmy John's, um, yeah, like tell me where Arby's is based. Like, what culture is Arby's? Like the icy moon of Jupiter Europa? Like, it's unclear. Yeah, it's just big, big giant hat land. Um, you know, in terms of um, oversized novelty hats. 
Um, Turn so Ferguson Berg. Yeah, yeah. You know, cue the celebrity Jeopardy. Um, it's an oversized hat, found it backstage kind of thing. But uh, what is interesting is like, I don't necessarily know if any of those brands have, even before they were acquired by something like Inspire Brands, they've already broken through their regional, you know, uh, surroundings in terms of like Sonic is now pretty much nationwide and all the other stores. So like while Duncan uh, has this... Um, New England cachet, I think what is the most interesting element is like from someone who's not originally from the Northeast, I did not associate that. So like maybe for like the rest of the world, like this isn't something that like necessarily matters, but in the microcosm of New England, um, this might be something that's like big in terms of this this shift or the maybe it's something to equate closer to like the watering down of a particular brand and maybe that's already been chipped away enough over the years to make something like Duncan or any of these brands to become more and more mainstream uh, you became you become closer and closer to the center and closer and closer to becoming vanilla uh, so I think that's like maybe one of the things to kind of think about potentially the most is the damage might have already been done to the identity of this brand way before its acquisition I think that's a great point because now I feel like you can be like the Duncan brand is so much more commercialized. Like in the grocery store, you can buy the like Keurig cups that are Duncan branded. Whereas like, like in the grocery store in San Diego, but before that, before I went to college in New England, I had never heard of Duncan. I was like, what is this weird, stupid coffee place that makes bad coffee and not good donuts that these people are all obsessed with? All right, Sorry. Pete's fan. Are you a Pete's person? Honestly, I'm just a pretty loyal Starbucks person. But I just, I don't, I've never understood the allure of Duncan. In college, it was like such a treat when someone would drive you down the street to go to the one Duncan in Williamstown, but I never understood. Nothing about it appealed to me. And maybe I think, you know, I think there's, you guys are right that it's probably only seen as a New England thing in New England. And that, like David, growing up in a place where we had them, not nearly the density of New England, I didn't associate it with that. So maybe, yeah, maybe it's strictly there. Um, it's, it's interesting. What I think is interesting about Inspire and being sort of this nebulous thing that like buys all the brands from nowhere. Like, Hey, if you're senior Inspire brands, there's your, mem your business memoir title, the brands from nowhere. Um, because it kind of mirrors like Coca-Cola to me in a way, which, and I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate Coke in this way, but you know, when it, when they advertise in Georgia and to an Atlanta to a certain crowd, they're like, Oh shucks, where is you know, Georgian is a dang peach in the dew in the morning on the farm. But like in reality and like growing up in Atlanta and knowing a lot of people who work at Coke, it's like, it's so the opposite. It's been such a global company for so long. And one that to its credit was pretty early on having leadership, like senior leadership drawn from other countries and internationally. And it's just such a, you know, a global monstrosity. Uh, I think Slava Zizek called it the ultimate commodity. It, it's funny, like, again, a lot of people here would be like, you know, Coke is such like a Georgia regional thing. And like, if you examine it for even one second at this point, like, no, it is not like at all. Um, I have a dumb question. Has Coke always been in Atlanta? It, I think the, the guy kind of technically invented it in Kansas or something like, but he didn't okay. sell it. So it was founded here. A bunch of our public institutions are named for people who donated a lot of money from being like early to Coke. So I went to the Coke place once. The world of Coke? Yeah, the world of Coke. And you're not talking yeah. the Maggie Riley's bathroom at 11 p.m. 
Yeah. Hey, um, I think you mean Billy Mark. Sorry. Uh, any any given West Side post-apocalypse zone bar. But you're talking about the Coca-Cola Museum or World of Coke. Correct. Right across from the Georgia Aquarium, which I've also been to. Wow, really tearing up the town down here, Randy. You know um, it. Don't tell, me, don't tell me you've also seen the airport. Hell yeah. All right. And the uh, State Farm Arena. Oh, yeah. You know what it's called? Yeah, I think so. We, we rebrand the arena, um, like all of our arenas every three years in Atlanta. We're actually running the first dynamic creative at the arena name level. It's very <laughs> technologically advanced. Um, but we'll cover that on our sports marketing episode uh, to come in the future when we meet someone in sports marketing who actually knows what they're doing, which exists, clearly. Um, and, and someone who is willing to actually talk to us. Oh, that's a like, great point. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of sports marketing geniuses. You know, we were all just admiring the viral sensation that is gritty today, but we, we just don't know any, but maybe one day we will. With that, I guess we'll get to Sean Langton properly. Sean, do you, uh, I, I can see you're grimacing. You listeners at home <laughs> only get audio, but if we see anything on the video track uh, that we just want to comment on, we will. Uh, Sean grimaced at his own name, which is, I think, the state of American existence in 2020. Uh, to be reminded of the existence of the self is pain. Anyway, Sean, do you do you want to do a quick bio? Uh, yeah, I worked with you dweebs at uh, VaynerMedia, and uh, now I spend my time uh, hosting my own podcast that combines my love of aviation and medical marijuana. It's called Air Bud. It drops Tuesdays on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please download and subscribe. Wow, Air Bud sounds incredible. Any relation to the award-winning film? Can we tee it up at the phrase award-winning there? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just not sure which awards it won, Randy. All of them. In the Farley household, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It won the award for the only movie you were allowed to watch in your media right deprived, out of my mouth. <laughs> in your media-deprived childhood. We'll, <laughs> we'll, cover, we'll cover the media of Randy's childhood at a later date. Sean, <laughs> what are you here to talk about? Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's uh, media planning and KPIs and setting goals for, for marketing campaigns. And I think everybody makes it a lot more complicated than it needs to be. I didn't know what KPI stood for for the first two and a half years of my career. And I quickly got to that point where it was like too late to ask. And I had to wait for like a really basic client 101 deck um, to see it. It was like that thing where you're supposed to introduce someone and you don't know their name. So you like try to get them to say it, but, but for that, that industry term. Yeah. I, yeah. I spent like my first three months in marketing, not knowing what CPM stood for. You know, I, I don't plus, know. Plus what, per mill. Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad, you know, you know what Americans love when you get things that are metric esque and in other languages yeah. involved in measurement. Um, we've had a lot of success getting Americans to, to adopt measurement systems with words like meal in them. So let's, let's define, so when we're talking about KP, KPIs for something, what exactly, like, what is the breadth of things we want to talk about the KPI for? Like a, a campaign? Uh, what, what, are we, what are we kicking around here? Yeah, so, you know, I, early in my career, I, like, did not understand the obsession with setting KPIs, key performance indicators. Uh, Thank you for saying it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's essentially uh, anything you're doing, there's an overarching business goal 
And it's usually something flowery, like, oh, increased revenue against an existing customer base. And ultimately, and you can have your business goal, it can be whatever it is, but ultimately you're looking for one number that you can use to determine if the campaign was a success or not. And you also set a, a benchmark, a goal you're looking to achieve. I've since learned it's uh, it's a huge part of Six Sigma, which if you've ever been a part of a large corporation or watched 30 Rock, you're familiar with. I think you can uh, learn more from 30 Rock, honestly. Yeah. If you are uh, a young person who somehow found this podcast and are looking to listen to everything that has ever been published on the internet, 30 Rock is probably the best. You will learn, you will learn more about business from 30 Rock than you will from listening to anybody that has worked in marketing, including this podcast. So 100%. I, I want to say I endorse that statement. Uh, in high school, instead of taking AP Euro, I smoked a lot of ditch weed and listened to Megadeth and Slayer albums about global politics. And I maintain that to this day, I am smarter than most people at think tanks about global politics because of this differentiation. So yeah. And look I, at again, you now. Yeah, here on a podcast that our first guest is saying is less educational than 30 Rock. Really crushing it. But I agree. Thank you, Sean. Continue. So, and it's, it's, a, it's a big thing at uh, a company called General Electric that is world-renowned for, you know, being around for 200 years. and Being generally uh, electric. Being generally electric. And uh, it's a huge thing about efficiency. And essentially what it is, is that you should be able to break down jobs to their kind of their most granular function. You should have some sort of measurement as to whether someone is being successful at that job or uh, if the project is a success or not, or, or some level of did this thing you did work or not. You know, if you go into a, a Chipotle, there's about a half a dozen people that build your burrito as it moves down that little conveyor belt of people scooping in corn and steak and rice and everything into the burrito. And it's not because building a burrito is so complicated that it requires six people to make. It's that it is more efficient to have each people person manning a station than it is to ha- try and have someone do multiple tasks at a time. And so I think marketing, much like the Chipotle burrito stand, if you're looking to be as efficient as possible, it is better to break campaigns down to their most granular function, set a KPI, whether it is achieving that goal, and then pretty much fuck everything else. If you have a campaign and or, you know, if you're looking to, well, we need to increase our brand recognition, we need to get word of mouth out there. And also we're looking to drive some traffic to our website and and really, but like at the end of the day, we need to increase revenue goals. You're already screwed. You don't have a clear goal in mind. You don't have a clear, there's no way to really measure success. You're just looking to do something businessy and you're looking to achieve it through doing some sort of marketing. Whereas really campaigns should define one clear goal any secondary tertiary goals should ladder up to that goal and it should you should only be looking to achieve one particular function at a time and whether it's increasing your brand recognition whether it's driving affinity for your brand whether it's getting a sale those are all separate objectives with separate goals and if you're not setting up campaigns separately and measuring success separately you're it's going to be difficult. You are, it's going to be less efficient than if you had clear objectives going into it. Yeah. So let me like hop in and maybe play devil's advocate or, or make you uh, defend your stance, which I will already tell you, I, I agree with, but I, I'm just going to make this difficult for you uh, in, in a way. So 
it's very easy to say that from something that would happen at a awareness level type campaign. So you want to like increase your reach or uh, your, your just generally brand awareness and those kind of things. Um, but then at the end of the day, like the campaign or the business objective for, you know, this business unit is X percent and, and revenue. And, and you could, there is the string that exists of if no one knows that we exist, there's no way that they can spend money with us. Uh, and it's very easy. Uh, and it's an argument that we face like all the time in terms of like, we need to have all of these different like KPIs. What is your, I guess, even like politically uh, sensitive and correct uh, way or bit like professionally like way to like respond to something like that when it's, you can understand like, yes, they are all connected, but like fill in the blank for that. So yeah, obviously they are connected. I think a lot of energy is spent trying to, you know, connect those dots and create the classic full funnel marketing campaign where it's, you know, oh, we're going to drive a bunch of video views and then we'll retarget the video viewers and drive them to the site and then we'll retarget site visitors and ultimately get them to purchase. And it it is much harder to connect those dots and it's hard to create that narrative because why someone watches a video versus where their, their, um, their, their purchasing need may be different. So if you are a car manufacturer, that is a, a purchase that you make roughly once every decade, it is something that you're going to put a lot of thought, a lot of time into considering you know, what type of car do you want to be in with the next 10 years? And it's something that, you know, I can only speak for myself personally, but I don't know why I prefer a Ford Focus over a Honda Civic. They're roughly the same type of type of car. They're both compact. They both, you know, have similar fuel efficiency, but for whatever reason, I have an affinity for Honda. And so if Ford wants to market to me, they have a much more of an uphill battle. They have to convince me that Ford is as good of a company as Honda, that they will be as reliable as Honda because those are attributes that I look for in a car before they even even consider getting me to like test drive a car in several years when it comes time for me to buy a car. And that is a very different user journey than laundry detergent that is going to have much less affinity for brand loyalty for, you know, a lot of the times it might just come down to what was on sale that week when someone has to purchase it. It's a purchase that's going to be made probably on a monthly or if you're lead yearly basis. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Also fun, fun fact about the Ford focus. It's not quite a mechanical twin of the Mazda three, but the chassis and base was co-developed with Mazda. And the only good things about the Ford focus basically were all Mazda ideas. Now, interestingly, I would never buy a Ford focus, but I have owned a Mazda and it's, really all pure brand cachet. I owned a Mazda 3, aka the Japanese Ford Focus. But when you drive around in a Mazda 3, occasionally guys are like, ah, here's somebody who might know about the legacy of the rotary engine in Japanese rally racing. When you drive a Ford Focus, I, I don't, I don't want to go into what um, you know associations people make. So Sean, you mentioned burritos, and I got to say, you're, you're talking to two of the world burrito enthusiasts here, myself and Randy. I was about um, to say, I hope I'm the other one there. In fact, I did have Dos Toros for lunch, and I thought about you, Lee. Oh, man. We, I, I used to eat Dos Toros so much, I called it the Daily Dose, because embarrassingly, some weeks it was. But, okay, I, and I, I'm not joking, because I think this is a good question. 
What is your KPI for a burrito, Brian? My KPI for a burrito is how much guac you get in there for your extra dollar fifty that you're spending. Outstanding. Outstanding. Sean, what is your KPI for a burrito? I would say, is it actually a burrito? If they stuff too much fucking rice in it and it's falling apart and you end up having to eat it with a fork, it wasn't actually a burrito. So my KPI would be how tight has the burrito been wrapped? So something like a burrito experience integrity index. Yes. David. I want, I want some quality assurance in my burrito. Um, how swaddled is your burrito? Oh yeah, you gotta swaddle that burrito. David, what's what's your burrito KPI? Well, yeah, I guess being in paid media has always made me sort of think about everything in a cost per uh, perspective. And I'm probably very annoying uh, in terms of uh, determining value out of things in a very, you know, objective and, and black and white sense. But it would be, I guess it would be the amount of uh, meat in the burrito to price. So meat being the most expensive ingredient in there, how much of that particular ingredient am I getting for, for the price that I'm paying? Excellent. That, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So, and I think my burrito KPI is honestly, it, it would be something that accounted for the, the proper positioning and distribution of ingredients within the burrito. And, and what I'm talking about is some sort of burrito ingredient disbursement number. And it's funny because I realized that thinking about the burrito that way kind of illustrates the problem of KPIs at different level. So I'm saying that my main KPI for the whole burrito is, is I want the right amount of each ingredient equally distributed. At the same time, you know, I've definitely abandoned burrito places. I'm, I'm a big sampler of many different burrito places. I, I've abandoned them because they failed the burrito KPI but I've also abandoned them because the beans are shitty. And so uh, even my burrito KPI doesn't account for, and I think this gets to Sean's point. I'm saying I want a good burrito with an even distribution of all the ingredients and I want them dispersed properly. I don't want one giant dollop of, of sour cream in one place or like all the cheese on the bottom. But the, the, quality of the individual ingredients actually matters. And I, I think kind of to Sean's point, the Six Sigma burrito, which is a nightmarish sounding creation, I don't know if I'd ever want to sample, I think would... You could all... sell it for like two grand. Oh, a absolutely. I mean, well, you, what's is it gold leaf is the thing that like yeah. actually doesn't cost much money, but if you put it on something like you can sell a hamburger for $100... But I, I think that kind of gets to the point, like Six Sigma is about not just isolating the stations, but getting all your burrito ingredients right. And then I, I think where all this difficulty in marketing comes from is, let's say I, I'm the beans man, which is like a horrible nickname, but like, you know, my, my responsibility, the, the beans, beans man, boy, <laughs> if, you, if you want to. Don't um, sit downwind. <laughs> I know, God, what a nightmarish nickname. But like, I think a lot of marketing, and I'll tell you, this this happens. It's like, you're the beans person, and like, you've got someone, they're like, okay, are the beans going to be good? And you're like, oh, believe me, I've I've spent 10 years at the, <laughs> the bean broiler. Like, I know what I'm doing. And then they're like, cool. 
and you make these like incredible, like, you know, wonderful black beans. They, they're actually even full vegan, but they don't seem it. You would think there's animal fat in them and they're flawless. And then you like watch the person like dump the beans in the trash can and then like dig them out of the trash can and then like wrap them in foil before they put them in the burrito. And you just like, I, I feel like stakeholders at all levels are like, look, I'm minding my beans. Like in, in the trouble with the single KPI thing is, is determining who gets to, to say at what levels these, these KPIs are separated. Is, is that off base, Sean? No, I think it's definitely, you know, there's definitely like plenty of campaigns that have bad KPI. And, you know, ultimately uh, a KPI should be something that can clearly, you can clearly ladder that up to the business goal and objective. So if your goal is you launched a new, a new restaurant and you need to get the, you know, you want to get the name of the restaurant, you want to let people in the neighborhood and, and city know that you've opened up this new restaurant. And you think once that gets out there, people will go on their own. All you really need to do is run an awareness campaign. If you're focused purely on the CPM and cost per thousand impressions and how many impressions you can get, you're going to have the shittiest, most hot garbage of inventory possible and be like, wow, my CPM was 23 cents and it was great, awesome. And ignore the fact that like, ultimately like, congratulations, you served your ad to like 999,000 bots and like a thousand real people. If you use something like, if you are at a more medium enterprise level business and have people going and it can run a brand lift study, which is where you serve your media and then a partner will survey people that saw your ad, people that didn't see your ad, and then measure the difference between of awareness and, and other questions on, you know, whether, are they aware of your business? Would they be interested in, in eating at your restaurant? And use those survey responses to judge whether your media had an impact on people. While not perfect and still somewhat flawed is better than just purely judging, did I buy the most ads possible? Using media metrics that may or may not correlate to ultimate business success as your KPI can, it can be problematic, especially if you are working with partners, if you have affiliates or an ad agency, or you're just paying some guy to do the work, because it can make things that don't actually do anything for your business look really good. And things that like may, may cost a little bit more, or maybe more difficult to run downplay how successful they could be for ultimately driving success for your business. What kind of campaign and, and where do you think this aversion to a single solid KPI, where, where, do, we, where do we all think this is doing the most damage? Like, I, I think some people may hear this and think like, uh, you know, the, the problem seems clear to me, but like, does, does this happen? Which we, we all know there's tons of these nightmare multi, you know, multi KPI campaigns. What do, what do they look like and how do they come about for you guys? Yeah. So I think a lot of these campaigns, you know, painting with probably the broadest brush like possible, but it, they, they reside within the, the clients that are medium to, to smaller in nature. And mostly that's because we are bending and we are being very cognizant of their budget restrictions and all the things that they have and, and they want to do a lot. And we know we've like bend the knee sometimes and be, you know, like leave our ivory tower of just saying a campaign as a singular KPI. We can have secondary and tertiary like KPIs, but, and it starts to get muddier and muddier. The more that you want to do more for your client, you kind of like 
bend to their will. I mean, not really their will, but uh, you just bend to giving them all of the things and you hope that you can do the most for them because you either one believe them or you've been assigned, you know, like this is your book of business and like make it grow and do well. And so you, you try to do all the things. And then there's also the whole side of, of the account and client management of terms of like making sure that they're happy, balancing their perceived happiness, success of the campaign, and then the actual success uh, of the campaign. And those normally are at odds with each other, but sometimes they are very much like aligned. And that's fantastic when that happens. But I think that's where a lot of this like lives is in this like trying to do good work at the same time of trying to please the client and make sure that their money does as much for them as possible. Because at the end of the day, you know, all of us, the four of us being media buyers, like our goal is just to be good stewards of our client's money and spend it in the best way that we possibly can. And so I think that's where a lot of this comes from is like, there are hills that we will and won't die on based off of like what we're really trying to do for, for our client. So I guess that's where I've been thinking about what you said earlier, David, in terms of like trying to build awareness when like trying to get someone to take an action on something where there isn't any awareness. And I guess my biggest question is around this new kind of like subdomain of media buying that's strictly performance media and like what kind of like qualifies someone to think they can only run performance media without building awareness is kind of like one part of the thing what I'm thinking about and the other part of what I'm thinking about is how it's like as as you said the stewards of media buying that we are how can we or should we try to drive clients into one different direction in terms of like well this is the KPI they think they want, but actually this is what we think might make more sense. Yeah. And I think in a lot of the, the ways that you would need to approach that, well, first I'll address like the performance marketing. I mean, performance marketing is a lot of times like a really tough position for agencies to like really be put in. I mean, they're just like, give me the number or like at the end of the contract, like we're done and we might not even make it to the end of the contract. So it's, it's a really tough position to like be a performance marketer because at the end of the day, like the numbers are the numbers. And I could probably get into a whole conversation about like what I think about performance marketing or plan and timed performance improvements over time. You know, I think there's been a handful of times that we've worked together. You and I, Ryan, have worked together on a client and we've really made strides to make sure that, you know, as soon as we take over the, the account, like we're putting every single optimization like in place. And uh, we do that and it's, you know, it's either successful or not, but let's say for this time, you know, it is successful. When we drive all the, the metrics, like, you know, cost pers and whatever go down, volume goes up, things are great. We've, we've pulled out all of our bag of tricks. And then the next year comes around and the client's like, wait, why are we flat kind of year over year? I'm like, we, we've done it all. You know, like media at some point can't do any more for you just due to the market and, and the economics of everything. I was just going to say, I think that's an interesting call out because a lot of what I do now is focused on that performance media only. And once you kind of reach that level of we're reaching these goals, but where do you go from there? And I think that's something that as media gets kind of more divided into this performance marketing versus not just describing yourself as performance marketing. It's like, I feel like the performance marketing people are more pigeonholed with their media buying than people who are just like, okay, let's grow a business and thinking more about multiple KPIs. So Sean, maybe I'm disagreeing with your whole only one KPI thing, but. No, I'm not saying that you should 
only focus on a single KPI as for your business overall, as much as you should be thinking long-term and you should be thinking performance marketing is typically all revenue driven. And that's very attractive to a lot of people because it is, you can measure revenue and you can, you can theoretically sit there and say, I spent $1 million and I gave you guys $5 million. You can all look how great and that creates two problems. One is how are you measuring the revenue impact of that market? Because you can design a system and say, anybody for 30 days after viewing my shitty display banner ad that was at the bottom of a game and someone didn't actually even notice, if, they, it, if that happened, it was because of that ad, it was fucking a great 320 by 50 ad, everybody loved it, they purchased because of it, that was my revenue. Or you can have a system that actually tries to measure the incrementality and the real impact of that marketing and whether it is truly driving a revenue positive return on investment for the business. And so what happens is, again, you set a bad KPI and you're looking just purely at revenue based on a bad system as opposed to that incremental revenue. And what happens is people create bad performance marketing campaigns that aren't actually doing anything for the business, but just look really good because of a flawed system. And then the other piece of that is there, you know, we're talking maybe five to 10 years ago when all of the direct consumer businesses really became a massive funnel for VC funding. If you were the first guy or woman to invent a mattress and a box that can be shipped to people and is 40% cheaper than the comparable mattress from a mattress store, that's an amazing value. That's an amazing purchase. You don't have to do much more than get that message out to people. When there are 129 competitors and you've saturated the market and everybody that is interested in a mattress is getting hit with 10 different ads from eight different competitors on a daily basis. That is much more difficult. And so performance marketing is typically a running back who can go one yard 100% of the time is not particularly valuable unless you're on the goal line and only need to go one yard. And you can look at that guy and say, what an amazing player, 12 touchdowns. And the guy's like gone 26 yards all year. Versus the guy that ran for 1,200 yards and was the guy who got you set up on that one-yard line tends to get undervalued if you're only looking at touchdowns. So I've only moved uh, 26 yards this year, and I have no touchdowns. So, <laughs> I, I mean, let's not knock that guy. But 69 touchbacks. Yeah, I also want to catch you in the, the lie that you stated earlier in terms of getting conversions off of 320 by 50s. I don't think that has ever happened in the history of digital advertising. I was going to comment on that too, but you were on too much of a roll, Sean. But no, yeah, it's like your three twenty like, by fifty is not going to. Yeah, it's like I you. like I I maintain anybody that has ever clicked on a three twenty by fifty did it by accident. I, I got to give a shout out to an old Verizon client. We have Melissa Ayala who banned she she instituted what was called the tiny banners ban. People made fun of it at first, but this is like eight years ago. It just way ahead of her time. I think an interesting thing between performance marketing and everything that lies beyond is everyone is either afraid to or confused about when to say and how to say we're, we're moving beyond our single KPI. So let's take the mattress example. I, I've set up my second wave mattress store. 
So like I, I can have some success. It's not just pure, you know, lower funnel media bloodthirst, but we're, we're at that point where, you know, we, we're at our max acceptable cost per mattress sale, like $500. We can't spend any more on performance media. So I've been doing, I've been, a, I've been a good little one KPI scout. It's mattress sales. So I've had my one KPI. It's cost per mattress sold. I think a lot of people get stuck. They do that really well and they get really focused. And then they end up at this weird fork in the road where they like, they want to keep that cost per mattress sold. And they think, oh, well, maybe attribution's going to save me. And they, they think a different attribution model will just tell them that all their upper funnel media is secretly selling mattresses. And it never does. Then they think, okay, let's get a secondary KPI. Let's do site visits longer than four minutes. But then they get lost in this forest of their site analytics person saying, you know, a lot of this website activity, it's junk. It, it never plays out to anything. I see a lot of people who do the one KPI thing right and then get trapped in this valley they can't escape from. We actually saw this with a certain manufacturer of fashion professional goods we looked at for a certain client of ours. What's going on with this weird trap where people actually do the one KPI thing really well and then get stuck in the eternal performance marketing thing where this is, I think these were your words about that brand we looked at. If they spend $3 million a month on media, they're going to make $9 million. If they spend $0 a month on media, they're going to make $80,000. When you're looking at that, that revenue and performance marketing, a lot of it comes down to you know, like how frequent is the purchase decision and what is that brand loyalty? You know, if it's a car, if it's a mattress, if it's a, a purchase that happens once a year, once every decade, any type of digital measurement marketing, which is going to be looking at number of days post-exposure to conversion is going to have a difficult time truly reflecting the value of getting a name out there getting brand recognition, getting people to associate a particular theme with your brand because that conversion, that revenue may not occur for six months, a year plus after you've run your video campaign or your, your marketing campaign. If it's, a much smaller buy if it's you know a candy bar beer brand or you know anything that is very frequent low brand loyalty very easy to change people's mind in terms of who they're buying from or what they're buying that is something that if you don't see the revenue happen immediately it's probably not going to come through later on and i think what happens a lot in the ad industry is it gets flip-flopped it's there's a lot of people that have infrequent purchasers decisions are, you know, should be more focused on awareness and building brand loyalty. They're focused purely on bottom line. And there's a lot of brand, you know, things that are not particularly brand loyal, don't have frequent purchases, are running Super Bowl campaigns and just focus on getting the brand the brand name out there. Yeah, this might be a a point that, you know, kind of might hit too close to to home in terms of, you know, us always in our industry, always talking about the funnel or now it's the marketing flywheel or, or something might be more accurate and apt now, but marketing Mobius life cycle. Yeah. So, but like Google is no shit doing something called the messy middle and it's just a giant drawn squiggle. I'm not joking. Look up Google messy middle. Hmm. Should I turn safe search on or off? Your call dealer's choice. Yeah, dealer's Sorry. Choice. Go ahead, David. Yeah. But I think, I think too much of the time it's like, 
it's presented this this concept of the funnel is then presented and then retained by a lot of individuals as an actual funnel and what it actually is is more of a colander in terms of stuff comes into the top and it does not necessarily go straight down to the bottom it can they can fall out of the funnel at any point in time for various reasons the barrier of entry to purchase you know the reasons to buy don't like really align you know it's a pricing thing the competitors have a better offer a lot of things that are outside of your control and so if you live in a world where you're only in performance marketing and there's a lot of you know marketers that like have to live in that world if there are no prospects or nothing coming in at the top of the funnel there's going to be nothing for you to reach up and grab and move them down into the bottom of the funnel in terms of different audience sections or website visitors and those kind of things like if you are not getting anyone to your site you can't retarget them they just don't exist so everything is even going to be like first touch cold calling digital advertising if you're just prospecting from a dr standpoint like it doesn't necessarily set you up for for success and you also need to start thinking about of like what you put into the top of your funnel isn't going to make it to the bottom it's going to fall out so you got to make sure that you're continuously feeding your funnel whether it's just general like inbound marketing and seo or all other just PR stuff. Like there's a lot of things that kind of fit into this like whole setting, but you have to make this a, an actual like endeavor part of your, your marketing uh, cycle. I'm definitely not trying to say like your entire marketing organization should have one KPI, but that it should understand like, what are the needs of the business? What are the KPIs that we're looking to achieve? You know, if you have a product that is, you know, either the, either top of the marketplace or really stands alone in the marketplace, you can probably do 100% or a large portion of your marketing budget to just performance marketing, easy conversion, getting people to immediately purchase. If you're in a crowded marketplace, if you've already been running exclusively performance marketing for five years, and anybody that's easily interested in your brand or your product has already purchased, then you need to be investing more of your investment in like that upper funnel and convincing people who may not have been previously interested in your brand or are buying a competitor's brand into converting. But if you are purely focused on that performance marketing, you are likely wasting a lot of cheap and easy impressions on people that are not going to convert just because of a, a single image banner ad and people that need to be hit with a high frequency of very convincing video ads to be convinced that your product, your brand is the one that they should be purchasing. So what would be your like elevator pitch for this thesis statement of yours that you would hope every marketer would at least if they're not able just due to other barriers that, that they have to deal with in their day to day, what would be the one thing that you hope that they at least consider uh, every time they're about to launch a campaign? I would love if they, they took the time and, and, and did a little bit of market research, whether that's a big business that has, you know, the capabilities to hire a genuine research firm or even if it's a smaller business that just does some Google surveys to get an idea of where they stand in the marketplace and where their struggles are. If they have low, very low awareness compared to their competitors in the space, then their problem is probably just a lack of awareness and they need to get their brand name out there. If their difficulty is that they people know about them but are not particularly interested, then they probably need to be running 
long form content. They need to be running things that get people's attention that will convince an audience that is otherwise not, that is otherwise uh, not going to buy, that is interested in what they're selling, but is not going to buy their brand for whatever particular reason. And if their issue is that people know about them, that people are interested in what they're selling, but they just, for whatever reason, haven't converted, that is where performance marketing, that is where emailing people, you know, every other day, that is where hammering people and chasing them around the internet with retargeting ads, that is where you can really succeed. And understanding, you know, what your needs are, where you need to fill gaps, as opposed to just like pummeling money at the thing that is telling them is causing revenue or running a bunch of media because it's the cheapest is not the best path. Maybe we should do one. Womb to tomb, you know, nose to toes, like a business type that is marketing itself and just go over all KPIs. Does it, is anyone here got one? Anyone want to get any free homework done by Sean? I think, I think Randy's excited at the phrase free homework. Free homework. Love that. Prominent, generally legitimate medical research and treatment charity. You can donate online. You can sign up for events online. But at the same time, you've got a public reputation facet as well. Because there's a lot of places people's money can go. It's a space that's impacted by political donation. How many different campaigns do you think I need? If, if I want people to donate to my medical research charity, and what would their KPIs be, Sean? Yeah, so I'm picturing getting people to donate to a charitable cause is not, you know, unless you are one of those larger charities that is, you know, people here and they're already aware of that you can just, people aren't aware of what your cause is, of, of what your, um, you know, where the, when they donate your money, where it will go to, you probably just can't run a Facebook ad and ask people for a donation and get a huge people, uh, a large percent of those people to convert. So what you're probably looking at is obviously a retargeting campaign, people that have already been to the website, you're looking at an email campaign of your, you know, existing contributors, organic marketing of people that follow your pages across Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. That's where your donations are primarily going to come from. And then you're going to need more of the mid-funnel type campaign. So what, what um, would those, the KPI be for those? Would it be donations so, at the bottom? Yeah. I, yeah, I would say, you know, ultimately, you know, whether it's direct mail or, you know, you can run Facebook ads or, or et cetera, the, the, the KPI for those campaigns that are focused on people that are already familiar with your charity are, you know, should be donations. Here's and a curveball have... for you. So would you do volume? Would you do total number of donations, cost per donation? Or would you take it a, a step further and donations based off of a, a, a ROAS uh, approach? Yeah, I, I would definitely, you definitely want to look at a, a return on investment than let's say the, the, number, the, the number of investments because, you know, a, a direct mail campaign that um, they may skew a little older people with higher incomes is more likely to, uh, you know, per dollar spent return a higher percentage. A, you know, a higher return on investment than maybe a digital campaign that's going to drive a higher quantity of conversions, but be a lower overall value. The other side of that is something, you know, that, that maybe I needed to account for is, you know, some sort of lifetime value calculation. So if your Facebook campaign, if the average person is, let's say 25, and 
you have good retention, you can get people to sign up for yearly, you know, annual donations. A lot of people make donations on a recurring basis. There might be additional value in, you know, setting some sort of, on average, 10% of people make a donation in the future of equal value. And so actually that revenue is two times higher. So if we can acquire, if we can acquire them as a donator, it'll move forward. If you don't have the analytics capacity to do that and project, you know, lifetime, you know, lifetime value, then using that immediate revenue is, is fine. It's just a matter of what you have the capabilities to do, what can you do with the, the staffing you have. So getting onto the mid funnel, you started talking mid funnel, what, what's in the mid funnel. And then after that, what, what is a mid funnel KPI? Because I think that's like kind of the current $64,000 question. Yeah. So I would consider, you know, mid funnel to be anything that is able to get people to associate a message with your brand. So not just that they've, you know, heard of your charity, but that they've, uh, you know, are aware of where the funds will go. You know, not just that, you know, okay, I know pink is for, uh, you know, breast cancer of some sort, but that they actually recognize the name that they, you know, recognize the message that they know where their donation will go. Typically, that requires more than just a single ad impression. So you'd want to look at, you know, driving people to site, time on site. You know, ideally, it would be more of a something that shows intent to donate in the future. So, you know, getting them to, you know, sign up to your emailing list, a request for more information, you know, something that is high intent. There is, you can see that, you know, a high percentage of the people that complete this action will don't if they can't donate now they will donate in the future and at the minimum it gives you you know some sort of personal information that you can contact them in the future and and market to them in the future is there an upper funnel god forbid yeah so you know i i think there definitely is you know some value to you know especially if you're if you're a charity if you're a cause that you think people can get behind just running some media to get the name of the charity out there I would think, though, that your marketing budget would be better spent. You know, you're unlikely to be meet, reaching diminishing returns with those more bottom funnel campaigns that it would make sense to. But, there, there, you know, if you are a huge charity, there could potentially be value in just getting your name out there so that when you run the email lead generation campaign, it's not people's first exposure to your brand. It's something that they, they've seen before and, and maybe view as legit along with community outreach, you know, connecting with potential partners, running events, and just something that can give yourself a, a sense of legitimacy, you know, in a space where, you know, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of charities people could potentially donate to. Well, Sean, thanks, thanks, sir, for coming on and, and talking about our favorite three-letter word. I know we have a lot of mutual favorite four-letter words. It's an um, acronym. It's not a word, Lee. Oh, God, sorry. Get it together. Oh, there's that education gap. Some of us were multiple-time NESCAC champions. Other of us were just ODAC dropouts, scrubs, and dunces. Yeah, two-time NESCAC championship, back-to-back. Some colleges are in the woods near nature preserves. Other colleges are in the woods near where people hunt squirrels to eat. Sean, I'm not really sure which one is Williams and which one is Lynchburg in that situation. It's, it's definitely Lynchburg. Like, no, no hate, all love, but I absolutely <laughs> went to school with some squirrel stew. Knowers of the taste. 
some burgoo. I didn't even know that's what it's called. Well, wow. Well, I'm from Kentucky. It's one of the things that I'm supposed to know. So, Anything you think is bad or funny in marketing that you, you wish could get better? You could call it a parting shot. You could also call it the um, Nick's next dud pick standing in the lane, flat-footed, ready to be dunked on. Uh, call it what you want, but uh, do you have anything for us there? Yeah, I just I, I I'm a huge fan of that we're like slowly moving to the triopoly of Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and that they will almost certainly not play together, play well together, and and the slow migration of digital marketing being this huge open environment with dozens of DSPs and SSPs all having to kind of collaborate in some way. To we will uh, slowly all just be working for Google and Facebook and Amazon at some point. So you know, I for one. Uh, I'm ready for a corporate overlords. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Our, our inaugural guest christening the ship with a, a bottle of what we hope is champagne. It's certainly a liquid, but who knows? Bubbly. Uh, Miller High Life. It'll be the champagne of beers. The true oh, champagne. The champagne uh, of beers. R.I.P. Billy Marks. Hopefully not R.I.P. Billy and Mark, but you know. Who knows? Maybe we'll maybe we'll discover if they weather this winter of of hospitality industry apocalypse. So uh, anyone want to go to Maggie? <laughs> I mean, I can't. You you guys can. Wait, 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 Randy. Have you been there already since you got back to New York? No, I haven't. Well, remedy that quickly. You ben. better believe I've DM'd Maggie on Instagram though. Oh my God! Sliding in with your spikes up. There's Wait, I, didn't realize, colada. I didn't realize we were going to have to tell about sliding into six-year-old women's DMs. I uh, wasn't prepared for this. It, it wasn't what we slated to have the episode about either, but uh, if you're hearing this, thank you for listening to the first episode of Bad Impressions, the digital marketing, media, and advertising podcast about things that are funny and bad and could get better. But probably you, won't. Yeah, they probably won't. I mean, I mean, we you know we can hope. There's that little glimmer of positivity. You know, we're we're doing this because uh, if, if, if advertising people are plenty good at, at hopey, changey language and, and self improvement, uh, but they're pretty bad at just actually looking at what you know, staring in the eye, what needs to be improved. So, if you have any thoughts, uh, feel free to leave a comment. If you are listening to this in a, a medium in which comments are allowed, we will read them. Uh, if you have any ideas for guests, if you want to come on the show, if you'd like to fight us in a public place because you're so mad at us, that's that's fair, but this is a geographically broadly distributed podcast, if you can't tell yet, so you might have to fly to multiple cities. We respect social distancing right now, so you'll have to just wait. Also, like we're far out of shape to fight anyone right now, so... Speak for yourself. Yeah, that's true. Whoa! But- Randy ready to go down or up a weight class to knock someone's ass out. Hell yeah. Like, to be honest, like Randy could definitely take all of our asses. Like, no way. I haven't worked out in eight months. Wait. Okay. Well, so my point still stands. We're all yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went, I've done jogging three times this month. Am I, uh, does that mean I'm in better shape than you? Yes. Three more times than I've been in eight months. So. Wow. Sean is a real Steve pre-diabetic Fontaine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, leave, leave a comment. You can email us at sadmin, that's S-A-D-M-I-N, like admin but sad, at badimpressions.co. We have that email address. No, badimpressions.online. 
Oh, sorry. I'm an idiot. Oh, I forgot. It's so much better. It's so Our much better. Our website is dot online. Wait, was like, extremely dot online taken already? Oh my god, we have to look that up. But I mean, who is on a website and sees a domain is like, oh, thank God, I wasn't sure if I was online. <laughs> Um, sorry. Yeah. Email us at sadmin, S-A-D-M-I-N at badimpressions.online. Um, we're probably going to get a Twitter handle. We don't have it yet. We might um, by the time you listen to this. So give us a look. Yeah, but exactly. By the time you've listened to this, we might already be banned from Twitter. Uh, God willing. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks for listening and we hope we left a bad impression.